All right, so hello everyone and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil Lizer, I'm a data scientist at IWOCA, and I will be your host. So today our guest is Alberto Rizzoli. He studied management science and statistics at CAS Business School. And after that, he had a bunch of experiences. He worked as a credit analyst, he worked in finance at Google. But then in 2015, he actually decides to launch a first AI startup called iPoly, which is a real-time computer vision startup for the blind and visually impaired. In 2018, he then founds a second startup called V7, which provides data labeling to AI company. So Alberto, hello. I'm so happy and excited to have you here with me today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Neil. This will be fun. I'm sure it will. So first of all, looking at your background, you've got some quite strong business background. So I'm wondering, how did you get into AI? How did you get into the field? Realistically, a lot of my business background was as an intern during university. So since I graduated uni, I've done nothing but either found or be like the first joiner of a startup. And I started my own at uh, at 21, actually at 22, sorry, right after I finished uni, which kind of makes you very much of a sink or swim learner. And in 2015, AI was really getting started and the deep learning side of things. So there wasn't all that much to learn other than the principles of it, the underlying math, which is quite simple. I mean, once you get gradient descent, you basically get most of the field, at least in, in the vision side of things. And it was an incredible year because many of the newly emerging techniques coming out of deep learning were finally becoming truly groundbreaking. You know, since the ImageNet challenge, there were those two golden years in which everyone started to apply deep learning to one technique or another, and it seemed to work quite well. So I was in the United States at the time, and I rang up my now co-founder, Simon Edwardson, saying, hey, this stuff is incredible. We should find out how far it can take us in terms of the world of computing. And with iPoly, it was a pretty easy match when you when you think of computer vision what's the first thing that it can help with and you think of people who cannot see at all it seems like a very natural application of it and with v7 the goal is a lot more ambitious it's one of creating a, a whole new form of computing effectively which deep learning promises to to start fulfilling one that's a lot more natural and that today is largely looking like data labeling looking like the the preparation of effectively the food that AI eats the the training data so long story short, it was just a good time to get started in AI. 2015 was a, a simpler time for the deep learning marketplace. And uh, it seemed like every big company was acquiring a team of clever statisticians and data scientists that understood the field to incorporate them within them. So already in 2015, you realized the potential that AI has and want to launch your startup, essentially? Yeah, pretty much. At the time, if you, if you look back at six years ago, we had 3D printing was on the rise. Self-driving cars were starting to become a concept. It wasn't quite sure then if deep learning was going to rule the entirety of it or if it was mostly going to be classical stuff. And there were a lot of other technologies. Drones were at their peak in terms of the hype behind them. 
We didn't know what delivery was going to look like. We didn't have virus issues around the world. So there were all these technologies converging at the same time and, and trying to fight for which one is, was going to change the world. And crypto was also just getting started. Mm-hmm. And I just thought uh, deep learning was was going to be far more remarkable than than all the other ones. It was just something completely new in, in the world of computers. And the world of computers had practically ruled the growth of the global economy for the entirety of my life. And this was its 2.0 version. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, I think you seem to be right, right? Deep learning has grown quite a lot since 2015. But yeah, going back at iPoly, so you started this company in 2015 at the boom of AI or at the beginning of this boom. What is AI Poly? What does it do? Can you tell me more about this company? So I founded it as a way of making use of the one viable computer vision system at the time, which was classifiers, object detector. Object detector architectures were still quite poor at the time, and they could run in real time on certain machines, but not the ones that we all have in our pockets. And iPoly was an app to help the blind identify objects in real time. They could turn it on, wave their phone around the room, and it would speak out in the text-to-speech voice the objects that it would effectively identify, including concepts, for example, living room or bathroom. And these would be parts of a a single label classifier that ran in real time on the smartphone CPU. It was as optimized as it could get for the time. So it ran natively on the CPU without needing of too many libraries depending on it. It ran really hot, like your phone would get really hot in its first version but it ran at five FPS, which was enough to make people feel like it was magic. You would wave it in front of a cup and it would finally say cup right away without needing to take a picture and wait. And this was an initial, an initial inkling of the user experience that we always wanted to create related to AI, which was that it should feel alive. And I really like to see everything made with deep learning as a living and breathing piece of software. You know, it's data set, it's continuously growing, and this thing is continuously evolving. And Every time you run an inference, it's come almost like you run a heartbeat through its its veins and transport some, some energy and knowledge throughout of it. But at the time, classifiers were still pretty limited. We first had a 1,000 object version, then a 5,000 object version, but they could only name one object at a time. Its biggest limiting factor, though, was that it was an accessibility piece of technology. So it was aimed at the market of people with disabilities, which is a very hard one to manage, especially as your first business in your very early 20s. And the part that we had, we had effectively had a convergence to turn it into a profitable business. We could either go for the route that many accessibility companies do and go after insurance companies and other healthcare groups. The problem there was that we didn't feel like that was really where our core skills are. It was really in building amazing technology or in helping other companies with other use cases develop their own classifiers. And that required a lot of training data. So we're at the convergence where iPoly was a smashing success from the virality of it. It scanned over 3 billion objects to date. But from a business modeling perspective, we didn't think that that was there yet. And this is something that a lot of AI companies experience in their first year or so, a couple of years of operation, where the technology is amazing and works like a dream. But the business model behind it is is quite a challenging one. Okay, so if I understand well, what AI Poly did was 
you it's an app where you actually show what's in front of you and the app will tell you what objects are there just in front of you. Is that what it's doing? That's so right, yeah. There is a cup, there is a wall, there is a house, something like that. Exactly. Okay, that, that's actually very cool, I think. But then you realize that the market is not there yet. The technology is cool, but the business plan is difficult. Is that when you decide to launch the second startup, V7? Yeah, there was a period of gap in between, which had a lot of twists, turns, things that we tried to pivot towards. And it was a lot of, uh, it was basically a, almost a year of time spent trying to truly understand what deep learning actually does to the world of computing, because it's a more fundamental change than the end applications. It's a whole infrastructure change to, to how software runs from a code-driven approach to a data-driven approach. And this is something that, you know, I, I think, I'm not sure if it was Andre Karpati that coined the term software 2.0, but it's probably the closest way to describe it is this new, new suite. And V7 was the answer to a lot of that. It's, it's a place where you can build software 2.0 and especially where you can use it as a repository to build software 2.0 and have all of your training data in one place. The need out of V7 arise from the many conversations that we had with our customers at iPoly that kept telling us, this is cool, but I want to train my own custom objects. And data science talent is scarce. We have a small team, so we can't build tools internally. And the tools that we build internally tend to suck because we don't maintain them. But yeah, let, let, let me pause there. Um, I've waffled on a little bit on, on kind of what that change was, but it, it effectively happened around then. V7 was founded in 2018. We kept our heads down building the product for a smaller part of a year. And then we had our beta launch at CVPR 2019. And it's been growing, uh, growing a lot ever since. We've just uh, had quite a lot of success in the data labeling space and in the overall training data space that is that is emerging in this whole newly forming MLOps universe. Okay, I see, I see. And going, so I want to go back first to the idea generation process that you mentioned. We'll then talk a lot about what V7 is doing and how you helping company, but you mentioned something interesting. You, it took you one year to decide which project you will be working on, on or how you will tackle this project, because obviously you need time to set up the right tool. How do you decide that a problem is interesting enough to start building a startup around it? You know, with AI, there are so many things that you can do. Uh, you can build, as you mentioned, a startup in computer vision, a startup in autonomous driving, a startup in climate, in healthcare. So what was your thinking that, okay, I now need to create some kind of data labeling platform. I need to start a startup on, on this. Yeah. Uh, the first part is that it wasn't, it, it isn't the labeling part that excites us the most, but the infrastructure around it and the ability to create AI as, as in the form of labeling. If you think about it, the market of AI is currently made of models and their architectures and the training pipeline behind them of hardware like GPUs and TPUs and IPUs and whatnot, and then of training data on the other side. 
And what we were realizing in talking to, we spoke to several dozens of companies that were all trying to build AI at the time, that everyone was using the same architecture. Sometimes they would say and tell investors, hey, yeah, we have our own proprietary algorithm. Because at the time, you know, in the in the Zuckerberg era of, of tech, proprietary algorithm meant something. In AI, it means you're probably taking the piss. And on the other side, the infrastructure was becoming more and more of a commodity. The, the days in which you had to wait two weeks for a model to train on your own workstation GPU that would just work and act as a heater in your office were gone. You can now train models in minutes. In fact, most of the models that are trained on B7 today, they take less than an hour to train, uh, which is incredible compared to like when we just had started. What was still the bottleneck was the training data. And the companies that we spoke to that were doing anything from retail analytics or uh, they were doing life sciences inspection and microscopes or medical imaging, they were all using the same network architecture at the time. And the only thing that was truly unique of every company was the quality and quantity of their training data that effectively represented an uncompressed version of the total knowledge of their models. And we thought that that was probably the center point of this, this AI revolution. And more so than the act of labeling, it is the ability to repository, like store it in, in one place and then easily get it labeled and then easily apply modify the labels, inspect their quality. And yeah, this this is the concept that nowadays is being called data-driven AI or data-centric AI. And I think this is the most exciting part of the whole MLOps universe. It's kind of represents the total library, if you will, the term of physical library, not a software one, that uh, artificial intelligence models know about. Yeah, I agree with you, to be fair. When, when you're doing a master or research, you're given like a solved data set completely clean, then the goal is usually to, you know, get 90 or 95% accuracy and try a lot of models. But when you're actually in industry, you don't have this clean data. And so having the data is maybe sometimes even more important than the model because the models are already coded for us, right? You just need to fine tune them a bit, train but having the data is something quite difficult. So in 2018, you actually realized data was important. Let's build a company around this. Indeed, and, and, and some teams still hadn't. And you bring up a really good point there because we're still looking a lot at the deep learning world from an academic first perspective. And many people who are financing the world of deep learning are still looking at academia first because academia has created this field. We're, we're, we're all standing on their shoulders in the industry side of things, with one exception, that they begrudgingly created data sets. That's why we're still using MS Coco as a benchmark for instance segmentation, when it is objectively a pretty bad data set. And ImageNet is even worse. Uh, in fact, a fun fact is, if you go on ImageNet today, if the website even loads, it's, it's one of the slowest websites in the world, and you go on class number one, it's aardvark because it starts with two A's. That class is 98% wrong. It's mostly anteaters in the in it. And uh, there's, there's almost no aardvarks. And th this just goes to show that academia has created data sets to improve the performance of model architectures and of improving the fundamentals of the field. It wasn't there to solve the detection of animals specifically it wasn't there to solve what, what is effectively an industry problem and purposefully so. 
But this also left the impression that data set quality was not that important, which is completely untrue. It is far more important sometimes than the actual architecture that you use. A, a larger data set with better quality data will perform far better. What I'd like to see more of in the future is academic challenges that don't focus on a fixed data set, but focus on a fixed model architecture and parameters and vary the data set instead. That'll be interesting to see. And obviously, it's there's the whole slog of having to label it, which is understandable, but uh, it'll it'll give us an idea also of how important this this notion of, of data-centric AI is. Yeah, that's interesting. Some kind of Kaggle competition, but without, instead of having a fixed data set, a fixed model, yeah, I'm sure that would be useful because right now, even at my company, data is really, really important and getting the right data can take more time than finding the right model. I now want to move back to V7 and the company so you mentioned that it's related to training data and hosting data in a centralized platform. But first of all, can you maybe explain in more detail what it's doing and how it's helping companies improve their algorithms? Yeah, in, in short and practical terms, companies will ro- load all of their data onto V7, whether it's image data, video data, medical images, anything that's made of pixels can be browsed on it. And it's divided into data sets and folders within them in a way that is far more readable by data scientists than our traditional directories are, which is our, an antiquated system, if you ask me, from a user experience standpoint. So instead of filtering objects by their file name, you can filter them by the types of annotations that are there, by who made the annotations, by what status they're in. They may be in a complete state. They may be still labeled. They may have run through a model or through a specific stage. And then you can generate workflows from them. And a workflow is composed of a series of nodes that could be a human annotation stage or a model annotation stage. And this allows you to combine the work of humans and the work of models into what is effectively an inference pipeline with logical conditions in between them. It also allows you to do things like check the quality of your annotators or your models by making them compete in a blind test, a consensus stage, which will then choose the image, uh, choose the path of the image on whether two or more people or models agree or disagree on the outcome of a specific annotation, whether it's a bounding box or a tag. And then finally, it allows you to automate your work by training models on the data that you've already labeled. So if you've annotated 100 examples of pipes with rust on them, you can now train a model to detect the rust automatically in future examples. And that model will act as a way of speeding up your work. You can also use that model in production if you want. And uh, some teams do. They're they're trained on, they always use an architecture that is either the state of the art or very close to it. And they effectively become like a REST API. But you can use it generally to speed up your annotation by quite a lot. And one feature that everyone loves within V7 is that it has pre-built general purpose models inside of it for computer vision. And what these do is they are able to segment out any object that you throw at them. There's a feature called auto-annotate that is this deep learning model that we maintain internally that is trained on so many different objects that we curate every day that is, uh, it's basically now class agnostic and generalized. So it's able to make a segmentation perfectly of the bone of a hammerhead shark in an x-ray 
some an object that is completely unseen in any data set, as well as it will do the segmentation of a pillow on a couch. And uh, I, I think this is part of the future, this, this ability to leverage well-trained or well-pre-trained general purpose models and then tell them exactly the name of an object and then just have them learn these embeddings, the actual names and classifications of items rather than the you know the, the need of learning how to segment out an object or or how to detect it. I, I want to zoom in this data annotation process that you've mentioned because I don't know how familiar our listeners are with this. But if I understand well, a company, for example, yeah, whatever, an autonomous driving company will include some images of cars and non-cars, for example. They will mm -hmm. upload this to your platform and then your platform will help them annotate those images and saying this image contains a car, this image doesn't contain a car. Is that right? Exactly. And they will also specify where the car is, either using a box or in most cases, a polygon to de determine its contours. Because one image may contain lots of cars, but it may also contain other objects that the car needs to identify, such as drivable surface. What part of a car's vision can you actually drive on? So every time a self-driving car drives, it uploads video of itself driving from multiple cameras to a platform like V7. And then within this platform, a combination of humans and models will be labeling it to say, well, there's 17 people in this specific image and the three of them are carrying a stroller. One of them is carrying a suitcase and we cannot drive over them. And this also gives you an insight as to how safe the system is. If it goes through the model of the car, and the car has missed one human of these 17, it only detected 16 humans, then you know that in that specific scenario, wherever the car was, there needs to be more training data for it to be a, a safer vehicle. Okay, yeah, makes sense. That's totally clear now. Maybe you can give an example of a company that, that you've helped or that has already included some data in your platform to train an algorithm. Yeah, I'm going to mention one that, that's local to us here in, in the UK, another great startup that has now exceeded a unicorn valuation called Tractable. And they are changing the way the insurance industry works by processing their claims automatically. You might know the one of the reasons why the insurance industry and insurance in general costs so much is that there's so much human labor behind processing every single claim that you do. And they're using AI to understand both the images that are taken for an insurance purposes, so anything that could be damaged, and then just having AI models that they train to understand what this damage looks like and uh, understand how this should be processed on a specific claim. Another company that we think is pretty exciting is, is called Remedy Robotics. They're also a startup out of Australia, and they are doing some truly remarkable things in healthcare. They are working on the more autonomous side of, of healthcare interventions. And I'm not sure exactly if I'm able to mention the specific types of operations that they do. But in the general, in the healthcare space, V7 serves anything from General Electric that is doing all of their, a large part of their ultrasounds are, are passing through models and humans within V7, all the way to companies like, like Remedy that are doing anywhere from you know, medical imaging that is that is actually on, on an operated patient or in a, a medical imaging scenario. So uh, anything, any type of radiology that you might imagine could go through a platform like P7 to be labeled by doctors or by humans for an AI then to become an assistant in the operating room. 
Right. So you're essentially hosting a centralized platform to enable machine learning to a wide variety of industries, right? You mentioned autonomous driving, insurance, healthcare. So just enabling everyone to build their AI algorithms thanks thanks to your platform. Yeah. And and I'm wondering what's what's the future for for this platform? Do you are there things that you still want to implement? At which stage are you of this startup and how do you see the future for for V7 now that you're starting to get clients, hosting companies, getting a lot of data? How how do you see the future? There's still a lot ahead of us. I think we, everyone who is working in the computer vision space, still feels like we're at the very beginning, even though there's been a lot of progress made. And right now we have hundreds of customers that are on V7. But I think that the proliferation of our space in in the AI, the AI world effectively will, will soon create thousands that have a, a plan with us and are actively generating models and, and relying on our platform a bit like a any company that is doing sales relies on a CRM. I think it's a it's a good comparison to make. If you are developing any form of AI, you should have a, a training data platform or training data repository of sorts where it can be visualized, labeled, and versioned. And the, the part that I'm most excited about is in AI's ability to generalize. Because right now you can build a lot of customized stuff on V7. You can build your own classifiers, your own instant segmentation models. It's the only platform with instant segmentation AutoML. And this is cool, but the the part that excites me the most is what will happen when you can start training on the wider internet with very well-curated data on it, and then you can use these general-purpose models to start from zero without having the customer need to do almost any work initially to, to train models or understand how to tune parameters of V7 and, and created a, a system for task automation that can solve the labeling problem in a way that is far more elegant and, and, and almost feels like magic. That's something that we're working towards internally and that we have a lot of exciting plans for, especially for 2022 releases. I think the part that will be most exciting is when AI will need very little tuning and very little, let's say, relabeling after every deployment. And it will be mostly focused on continuously improving its performance as more and more data enters what, what is effectively this library of knowledge within each, uh, within each team. Okay, that, that looks very, very exciting. Yeah, I wish you good luck for, for the future, but I'm sure it will be something big. So I now want to move to the second part of this episode where I want to talk about your vision. You've been in the field for a long time now, since 2015, maybe even earlier. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of different algorithms and a lot of things about AI. So the first thing is looking at the past, did AI ever surprise you? Like, is there one algorithm or one event where you told yourself, wow, that's crazy. AI can actually do this. I, I didn't expect this to happen. Did, did you I get this? I, yeah, all the time. But I, the, the, <laughs> the effect is inverted. You start by being amazed. And then a couple of months later, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, I mean, I get it. It's just training data. And I think the, the part that surprised me the most most recently is the DALI paper by, I believe, OpenAI. And it's a generative model 
that is given natural language inputs and is able to draw pictures that are both photorealistic and highly creative and with strong semantic relationships embedded in the natural language. For example, you can give it a prompt to paint you a penguin wearing a red hat and yellow shoes, and it will generate all of these 256 by 256 icons of penguins dressed exactly like that. And sometimes they're cartoon penguins, sometimes they're semi-photorealistic. So it's, it's very creative. And it's not something that expected would get there so fast because GANs are a relatively new thing still. And they still feel like a hack to me, but they are becoming more and more elegant to the point where they they just fooling me into thinking that they're they're just incredible. I, I think that was the last time I was really surprised. After a bit, after you read the paper, you start to realize like, okay, it's just this makes sense. This it should it should do this. Um, and this has been a continuous trend, I think, with everybody in, in the field where there's a new paper and you're absolutely amazed. Like how, Another one was Poet, which is, I think, Jeff Plune, who's former Uber AGT, now at OpenAI as well, that was this cool reinforcement learning system that would basically create its own portfolio of, of challenges. And it was this bipedal, it looks a, a bit like Quop, if you remember the, the old Flash game Quop. And it would just have to jump over obstacles and it would create its own obstacle course to basically improve its training. It's, it's almost like a taking self-supervision to the, to the core meaning. I was amazed by that one. Nowadays, I'm thinking like, oh, I, you know, I wish we were like a 10x the, the level that poets started at nowadays. But uh, it, it's great. And I think one of the cool thing about the field that we're in is that every 18 months, the state of the art is thrown out of the window by a much better technique. Yeah, the, the part that I think I can't foresee is whether we're actually on the right path with with deep learning or whether there's something big that we're missing on. And but But I have faith that given the amount of clever people working on it, someone will figure it out. Yeah, exactly. The field is evolving so quickly that it's kind of difficult to see where where it's going in the next five years, right? There are so many improvements within even a few months. You can yeah, have one crazy paper and then two months after another one that's even crazier and beating the previous one. So uh, how do you see this field evolve in the next five years? Actually, what's your vision on it? Obviously, we might be missing something, but... What do you the think vision is one of uh, radically simplifying the the space, especially for the the remit that we're in, which is the the training data side. And the experience that we want to create is that you almost take imitation learning to the extreme, and you teach an AI exactly like you would teach a human by solving a task on the platform, and then having a model figure out how to repeatedly solve it for you, and only flag it to you when it actually needs help. To do this, we need to do a better job at explainability. I'm not saying that we're not. It's just the best way to to do explainability, I think, in the world of deep learning research is to build better models. And that's exactly what we've been doing for years. But I, I think that's part of the future of AI is actually going to be A, in data and data-centric AI, B, in meta-learning and, and to take it to a next level, more of an imitation learning side of meta-learning where 
the learning how to learn aspect is taken to the extreme and, and focused on human centric training. So training that doesn't work on the abstract data that is happening in, uh, let's say, the output of the, the financial market, but in the activities that humans actually perform. I'm very excited about that. I think it's going to be a big topic in the next five years. It's part of the healthcare space in the way we do surgery and understand people and patients. It's part of the healthy aging space where we're building robots that will need to help us in our day-to-day lives. And it's part of the robots that are now starting to co-live with us in the workspace, like Spot robots and all the other dog variants, robots that are now picking up parcels. The best way for them to learn is, is actually going to be by looking at a humans do the job and then see how well they can do it themselves. So by imitation learning, you mean a human will show the AI what to do. For example, the human will show that this is how you pick up a book and then the AI will just copy the human. Is that what you mean by? It, exactly. And, and the, the leap there to do is that the, the robot will have to understand that the human hands are the equivalent of its own embodied versions of that. And that's a big cognitive leap to do. But I think we're going to get there. And that's, that's the secret to that is just getting, getting a lot of training data that shows exactly that. Something else that you mentioned is explainability, and we need to build better models and make them more explainable. But from my point of view, the most explainable models are the simpler ones, like linear regression, you know, very, very simple models. So isn't it a, a bit contradictory that you mentioned? We need more explainable models, but we also need bigger models, deep learning models. How, how do you think about this? I absolutely think we need bigger models. And I think that the linear regression is explainable in the same way that like the economy and monopoly is explainable, board game, whereas a deep learning model is closer to like the economy of a country in which it has a lot more parameters and weights in it. But sometimes if you if you throw something into it that it doesn't expect, it goes to shit and a lot of people suffer from it. And the, the secret to it is to just build a healthier economy and one that is able to actually flag its, its rotten areas of it. And that's not, not that easy. But I feel like the progress that we've done in building models that can effectively compress a lot of information is in part negating the need for a lot of explainability because they, work, they just work better. But the actual work that we need to do in explainability is going to be on the data set side to a large degree where if the model is residing in the same space where the data set is, it can, spo- it can point out using its own weights, the outliers that, is, that are making it make a decision. So I think that a lot of, a lot of the future of inference is going to be wherever the, the data set is stored. So it can point out, hey, I made this decision because of these points of training data that you fed me. This is my reference. More so than like, the current explainability techniques that are largely about heat maps on an image in the computer vision space, which are fine, but also a bit of a hack. Uh, it would be far nicer if they actually retrieved cases of the training data. And then on the other side, we just haven't spent enough time trying to teach models to explain their results in ways that are deeper than just, you know, just another inference uh, result. We haven't established frameworks or techniques or 
reasons for doing that in many cases, because every industry has a different definition of what is, what is explainable and how should, how should something be explainable. So I, I think there's really a long way for, for the explainability side of things to go, to go ahead with. The part that I have the most faith in, and I'm biased, is in pointing out outliers in the data set and saying, I decided that this picture contains a dog because this, these 17 dog examples look very similar to it. And then if you, the human, realize that they're not dogs, they're chicken, then you, you understand you've made a mistake. Okay, I see. So also having some kind of setup such that the model knows when he doesn't know, something like that, because at the moment it's doing a lot of predictions. And even if you give him an image of a cat, he might say, I think it's a dog, even if he is like, 51% sure, if you see what I mean, instead of 99. So having some kind of model that's going to say, I think it's a dog, but I'm not entirely sure because this image is of the distribution of my data set. So human do something or retrain me or. And that's the biggest problem that you just mentioned with a lot of industry or misunderstanding in, uh, in classification is that the fitness score that is spit out by, by the soft max layer at the end is actually not a certainty score at all. Even though it's like, it feels like it, it really looks like it is a certainty score, but it is at best a representation of how biased your data set is towards that picture. But it has no logical or, or, or particularly deep explanation towards it. And so it's always should be seen with a grain of salt. Because you could say that something is 99% cat only because that dog is on a carpet. And that's generally where cats tend to spend their time in. Even though like most of the pixels belong to the dog, the carpet just throws it to, you know, oh, this is most definitely a cat. I've never seen a dog on a carpet before. That case happens more often than, than one might think, especially in spaces in the industry side where the images tend to come from instruments that are differing. So if you train all of your, let's say, all of your x-rays in a Philips machine for people with lung cancer, and then you take a control by another, let's say, a Siemens healthcare machine, and they're all healthy, all the AI is going to try and classify is which machine took the picture by just looking at you know, some, some odd pattern in, in the data, as opposed to the actual lungs. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely agree with you on that point. I want to now just ask two questions before we, we finish this episode and more on the advice side rather than the vision. The first one is you're the CEO of V7, so you've for sure working with data scientists. So what's a good data scientist according to you and what would be your advice for someone who wants to become a good data scientist? A lot of our work, our interviews at V7 have to do with creative output, more so than knowing a specific technique or another, because techniques are, like we said, thrown away every 18 months. So if you learn how to train a specific model, that's fine. But the thing that we look for the most is what is your vision of the space? Where do you think, what, which camp are you on? Are you in training a lot of small models that solve individual tasks, or do you believe in larger generalized models? Do you have a vision for this? Do you have someone in the in the research side of things that you admire there are, there's definitely a, a much like in, in in any industry that is heavily pushed by academia 
there is a series of stream of thoughts that are coming out of certain researchers that some people agree with and some people who heartily disagree with. And which camp are you in? Are you, are you kind of part of this tribe? And what I would recommend you to do is to only focus, and you might disagree with me with, on this, Neil, but you know, Alberta's advice is only focus on the state of the art. Leave everything else behind. Sure, you, you're going to want to learn a lot of the basics, but if you are, if you, yeah, I would say just, just leapfrog to the latest stuff and try to learn it at a fundamental level and work backwards from there. Uh, once you get to the underlying math, and it won't be too many steps, you don't really have to understand every single step that the computer vision research field has gone through since the 70s, which is what they teach you in your first five lectures at university. Go to transformers, work your way back until you fully understand it. All right. So start by understanding state-of-the-art model and yeah, make sure you understand them quite well from first principles. Yeah, and especially the motivation behind the the decisions that these researchers have done. Try to think in their minds. They're a good way to start, especially the ones that are highly paid and highly cited right now. You start thinking like them, you're going to end up like them. And if you had one advice for someone who wants to progress in their career, just one advice, what would it be? As a data scientist? As anyone. Anyone in any field. I would say don't expect immediate success. Work like you're earning minimum wage every day. And the the worst thing you can do is think that like there's there's any ways to make quick success in, in this specific field. Remember that we're we're standing on the shoulders of people that were not believed in for two decades until this field actually started taking off. Actually, three decades almost. So do do deep work, no pun intended, and do it as if it's never going to be successful, but for some reason you believe in, in it to be to be something incredible and that, that has a lot of potential. Uh, if you're not, then that means there's 100,000 people that are also working on that thing and that uh, you're just going to be unhappy in a sea of other people that compete with your own space. Well, Alberto, thank you so much for this conversation. It was great to have you here. Have a good day and hope to see you soon. Thank you, Neil. Great to be here.